Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, part one of our look at the future of history. This is simply a different method of delivery of content. It's a way of saying, well, anybody with internet access, you don't have to live next to a research library. We'll discuss a letter written in 1884, The letter somehow made its way all the way out to the Midwest, and here it is in the 21st century, made its way back down to Florida where the letter was originally penned. And we'll talk about the Tequesta Indians of Southeast Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. New technology is impacting every aspect of our lives. When you hear the term digital history or digital humanities, you might think of online access to scan primary source documents. While that's important, there's much more to digital history. Connie Lester is director of the Riches Project in the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida, an interdisciplinary effort that records and preserves the documents and stories of Florida communities, businesses, and institutions. One that's particularly important to the project I work on is um, the way in which we can interact with the public um, in a way that we couldn't before. Uh, And I think that's really important, um, that the public then becomes involved in in the collection and the interpretation of the history. So the digital tools allow us to do that. Um, But I think the other thing that historians think about when they're thinking about um, digital history are the tools and the way in which the tools can allow us to see things that are hard to explain in in a text fashion. Julian Chambliss is a professor of history at Rollins College. He has engaged students in a variety of digital history projects. Perhaps most notable is the online reconstruction of an African-American newspaper called the Winter Park Advocate, which was believed to have been lost. I think you think about the methodologies that academics use to try to explore, preserve, or present historical narratives in a way that engages with the public and offers new insights and new interpretations that takes advantage of the fact that we have digital tools, platforms that allow for different interpretations to come to the fore, right? So you can hear the voices of the past, you can sort of experience 
um, place in a, a particular way using sort of virtual reality. Uh, you can be brought to places and be brought to in, in, into discussions and into contexts that you wouldn't be able to do just simply with books. Um, it is a, an opportunity to present history in a way that can be more engaging, especially for students, uh, but for the public in general as well. Lori Taylor is digital history librarian at the University of Florida. One of the things with digital history and digital humanities, we're adding the digital in, it's a marker of us being in a digital age. So this is a particular moment in time, just like cell phone. I don't know how many people say cell phone anymore, my students certainly don't. They say phone, you know, but cell was important as a marker when we also had landlines and, and home phones, and so it was a different situation. But now what we're really talking about is doing the humanities and doing history and doing it at a bigger scale and with more people, uh, which is a tremendously exciting. But a lot of people still think of history of the humanities is something that's locked away in books and locked away in libraries that only some people can access. So digital history, digital humanities is opening up those possibilities for all of us and then saying, well, what else can we think with? How can we think through these things in the digital age with new tools, with new resources? And how can we bring those to bear using our humanities expertise, um, which is speculative, which is imaginative, which is creative? How can we imagine a different future? And so then working with the tools to do that and to present that and share it with everyone. Scott French is professor of digital history and public history at the University of Central Florida. Well, they can think about research. Uh, these new powerful new tools allow us to look at big data sets and look for patterns, uh, hidden patterns in text, in data, and that's exciting because this is work we could not do without a computer. J. Michael Francis, professor of history at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, has developed the La Florida Digital Interactive Archive. This is simply a different method of delivery of content. It's a way of saying, well, anybody with internet access, you don't have to live next to a research library that has books related to colonial Florida. We, we hope to, to, to drive an audience that might not pick up a book about colonial Florida, but might be willing to engage with a website, might be willing to watch a video and then start to pose questions and maybe dig a little deeper. Uh, we would like to have, I think, all school children, uh, not just in the United States, but in Spain and Portugal and, and France, have access to this material. For centuries, students taking courses in history and humanities topics have been assigned a stack of books to read and then meet on campus for a mixture of sage-on-the-stage presentations and Socratic dialogue. Technology is changing the student experience. Students have access to much more than they had before, so um, articles, um, art, uh, maps, uh, photographs, that they could not see previously, they now can see, and they can begin to uh, analyze those uh, documents and artifacts uh, in ways that they couldn't before. They can see them um, from various angles if they're a three-dimensional object. Um, they can connect with other students to talk about um, the objects, to arrive at an interpretation. Um, they can develop uh, websites themselves. They can interact with the public to create websites that um, are ongoing. Uh, it gives them 
an opportunity to um, to interact with the history in ways they couldn't before. They still write plenty of papers, um, but they also do all sorts of other things that are hands-on types of history. Students are now sort of living in a kind of flipped classroom. A lot of the work of uh, reading material can be digitized, so you don't get a big stack of books. <laughs> they, they, they get sort of like a, a access to an electronic collection that the professors put together of readings. And they do that outside of class, and then when they come to the class, they have the time to discuss. But also, increasingly, I, a lot of times in my class, we, we work on creating, right? What can we create, um, sort of distilled from our, our interpretation of the primary sources? So we might make posters, we might uh, do like audio documentaries, uh, we might sort of like try to reconstitute something that's in fragments uh, digitally, and all those are opportunity for the students to sort of like synthesize the information. And it's a kind of like proof of learning, right? Like a proof of concept that they understand what the sort of primary sources represent in terms of like the broad historical narrative. In so many ways. I mean, so some of it was just the the, the book weight, you know, and having it be inaccessible to some. So, I, and the books are heavy, you know, that, that's a big limitation for students actually reading them. Um, not that students and everyone doesn't still love books in print, um, but one of the things is having the books be online, having the materials online, means that our students talk to their parents about it. They talk to their girlfriends and their boyfriends and their other significant others and their friends and their cousins. And you'll end up with questions in class with a student saying, well, you know, my cousin was reading this book and we were talking about it last night and my cousin was really excited and it enlarges our sphere of communication and our public so we're really engaging with these questions in the public sphere in a lived way that's much more meaningful for students than just a teacher standing up in front of the classroom lectures are really important um, but instead of it being something disconnected that only happens within the classroom space we're doing the humanities but we're doing it better um, in that it shows people that we've always wanted these conversations to be outside the bounds of our classrooms and our campuses but we didn't always have the means to do it and so now we have more possibilities for that and so we're taking advantage of those. Well sometimes what happens now is that I ask the students to work outside of classroom and work with the resources and do the readings and viewings outside of classroom and then come to class prepared to talk and so the classroom space is much more about conversation, dialogue, analyzing primary sources together I think the accessibility on one level has absolutely transformed higher education. I can have students doing meaningful primary source research uh, from St. Petersburg, Florida that was unthinkable uh, a generation ago. That with the, the volume of digitized original documents, uh, I think that uh, this uh, again has opened up, has in some ways complicated things just because of the volume of material. As recently as the turn of the century, humanities professors made the change from physical slide carousels to PowerPoint presentations. With technology changing so rapidly, it can be difficult for teachers to keep up. Connie Lester. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> because things change every day. On the other hand, we're becoming accustomed to the fact that we have to keep up. Um, there are, at least on our campus, there are plenty of opportunities to receive help. Um, I think one of the hardest things to overcome, and once you overcome it, a whole world opens for you, but the hardest thing to overcome is to be able to say, I don't know how to use that, um, and ask someone to show you. Uh, and once that happens, then you, um, you have access to a world you didn't have uh, before. And um, so I think that's the biggest barrier, uh, but we're overcoming that pretty quickly. Julian Chambliss. 
Yeah, this is a huge problem. It's a problem from an individual standpoint. It's also a problem from an institutional standpoint. Um, one of the things about digital that is uh, both good and bad is that when we start talking about things being on a digital platform, people have a lot of intimacy with digital things, right? They understand digital things. We all have a supercomputer in our pocket. We all uh, access uh, sort of like digital imagery. We all understand sort of like audio uh, tools. But we understand those things primarily as users, not creators. And so we don't understand the problem associated with like creating a digital thing. We don't understand the problem of curating and maintaining the platform associated with those digital things. So it is a, a lot harder. Lori Taylor. The faculty are uh, increasingly placed under more and more strains. Most faculty, the reports and analyses show that they work over 60 hours a week with the committee requirements, with the service requirements, letters for all of the students, the mentoring support, and then the time in the classroom and preparing the classes, and then the time doing their research. So it's a huge amount of time, and where do you fit it in to convert what you've already done to PowerPoint, you know, or to, you know, Scalar, to the next technology, and then to engage with people? Now you're doing it at a, a larger scale. How do you find the time for that? And so part of that is making sure that we have the right array of teams um, and support to be enabling on that. People don't have to learn everything. Um, they, our uh, teaching faculty shouldn't have to also be experts in Scalar and in web servers and everything else. So how do we have the universities and different institutions set up to provide that in and, and a team environment so faculty can learn as much as they want to, but they don't have to be experts in all of these things with a workload that's just impossible. Scott French. Well, I think it is a challenge. Um, I think increasingly that's part of our job, right? We need to know what's available to us as teachers and make the most of it. I think what teachers are discovering is that this is really fun, that we're giving students the tools to make discoveries and for them to share their excitement with those discoveries. So for the teachers, it's a big reward, right? You invest time in learning how to use these tools and learning how to teach with these tools, but you're also getting a lot back from the students. J. Michael Francis. I still consider myself somewhat of a Luddite. Uh, I still take notes on note cards. Uh, I have not been able to transition to taking archival notes on a computer. It's just, it just doesn't work for me. So I still take notes the old-fashioned way. I think I retain information better. And I like to have the physical note cards. Uh, and even you know, most colleagues now in the archive, when I do archival work uh, in the summer in Spain, uh, very few scholars now take notes the old-fashioned way. And, and certainly there are advantages to the kinds of digital innovations over the last uh, 25, 30, uh, 35 years. We spoke with historians Connie Lester from UCF Julian Chambliss from Rollins College, Lori Taylor from the University of Florida, Scott French from UCF, and J. Michael Francis from the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. They will all join us next week for part two of our series on the future of history. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Give me a ticket for an air.
time to take a fast train Lonely days are gone, I'm a-going home My baby just wrote me a letter Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have here an interesting letter from the FHS Archive. Yeah, that's right. We're looking at a letter from a gentleman named F. Sims, dated March 9th, 1884. And it was sent from Sanford to uh, someone who the author identifies as Brother William. Uh, who was living up in Massachusetts. So uh, we're assuming that that Sims was probably originally from Massachusetts. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about the uh, the gentleman's or the author's uh, background. Uh, he was probably from Massachusetts originally, but through the letter, he gives us uh, glimpses into his life. So we know that he's a traveling salesman of some kind, and he's traveling into the southern part of the U.S., in this case, uh, through Florida, and he finds himself in uh, Sanford by way of Jacksonville and Palatka. So he actually took a train down to Jacksonville, visited St. Augustine, then got on a steamboat and traveled up the St. John's River as far south as Sanford. So according to this letter, that was about as far south as he was going to get because he was running out of money. uh, And and he was telling his brother about his experiences uh, making money and then quickly losing it and how much it cost to travel down here and all that. But it's an interesting letter in that it gives us kind of a a, a fascinating glimpse at uh, not only how one traveled in Florida at that time period, but uh, there were just some kind of great uh, observations and and little uh, bits of information that he picked up uh, and included in this very personal letter to a family uh, relative up north describing his experience. Now, the author of this letter has some unique observations of this time period in Florida in the late 19th century. Yeah, that's right. And we have to remember that Florida's population was only around 270,000 people in the entire state, according to the 1880 census. So by 1884, it's still a relatively small state. So someone coming from the north would pick out what we might call curiosities. Uh, He talks about the different types of people, um, but he also notices what's happening um, and, and something that we might find interesting or an environmental historian might find interesting. He mentions what's happening to a lot of the forests. And I'll just read a passage. This is on the first page. Uh, He notes here, quote, chipping the pines for pitch, burning and ringing to make clearings, and to increase and to increase the grazing for stock, its consumption for fuel for the railroads and steamboats, as well as dwellings, and the sawmills are fast laying down and destroying these forests, unquote. So here we have someone just coming into Florida, never been here, probably had very little context, observing that a lot of this rapid expansion that was occurring after the Civil War years in Florida was having an impact on the natural environment, uh, which is is kind of interesting. He also talks about, uh, uh, throughout the letter, uh, it's kind of comical, but he lost his umbrella three or four times. Once uh, he was in St. Augustine and a, a wildcat that was in a cage, he got too close and the wildcat grabbed his umbrella and ripped it apart. Uh, he bought another umbrella and he was waiting for a steamboat at the dock in Palatka and uh, dropped it in the water, uh, went in after it, but uh, it soon disappeared. And he said everyone was uh, watching him on the pier. Uh, so at the end of the letter, he kind of jokes about, uh, you know, send me an umbrella, please. Um, but he also talks about uh, while in, in Palatka, the uh, body of a, uh, the headless body of a man washes ashore. 
And he mentions that uh, some of the local people there who we talked with uh, seem to think that he was murdered for his money. Um, so that gives us kind of a, an idea of the amount of money that, that's coming into this new territory. So you have a lot of people coming from other places trying to seek their fortune. This is kind of a, a gold rush, if you will. And just like the gold rush out west, uh, it wasn't necessarily the miners who made the money. And he makes this observation here in Florida, the gold rush was citrus. Uh, people were coming to uh, open up these uh, citrus operations, especially in central Florida. But uh, those weren't the people who were making all the money. It was actually the people who were supplying the trees, so those who owned and operated nurseries. And he mentions that. Again, this is, this is a very acute observation for the time period. Uh, and lastly, I want to read another uh, passage. He's writing again back to his brother up north. Uh, and he says here, quote, should you want or know of anyone who does any Florida curiosities as small, live, young alligators, please let me know. The curiosity shops offer to sell and mail them to you for something less than a dollar a piece, unquote. So if you can imagine that, sending an alligator up to Massachusetts. But it sounds like he was enjoying his time traveling through Florida, uh, even if he didn't stay here very long. While this letter is from 1884, it's new to your archive, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the letter actually just came uh, to the archive as a donation uh, from a donor in, in uh, Minnesota. So the letter somehow made its way all the way out to the Midwest, and here it is in the 21st century, uh, made its way back uh, down to Florida where the uh, letter was originally penned. And in fact, the majority of the FHS collection comes to us on donation. It, it has been that way uh, throughout our history, so well over a century. The majority of what is housed in the Florida Historical Society archival collection uh, originally came here as a donation, and now this letter will be part of that long tradition. Interesting. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Oh, This is Florida Frontiers. When the Spanish first came to Florida in the 16th century, there were dozens of indigenous groups here. The Tecesta Indians lived in southeast Florida. Holly Baker, a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has more. The Tecesta were the Indians of South Florida, the southeastern part of Florida, from, say, 5,000 years ago until and up through the arrival of the Spanish. So they are the inhabitants of South Florida, ranging from, let's say, a little bit east of Lake Okeechobee all the way to the coast, and then down through what is now Miami proper, through Monroe County, a little bit on the west side. So they were pretty wide-ranging, and they lived in villages. They were sedentary. These were folks who often lived off of marine life. They were not farmers, um, although they would harvest agricultural products that, that grew naturally. And they were, I mean, they were South Florida's first permanent residents. That was Dr. Andrew Frank, author of Before the Pioneers, Indians, Settlers, Slaves, and the Founding of Miami. He recently talked with us about the Tequesta Native American tribe of South Florida. Long before the pioneers and explorers arrived, the Tequesta lived in large settlements along Biscayne Bay, near present-day Miami. The Tequesta were skilled woodcarvers, fishermen, and hunters. As Dr. Frank explains, even though they lived in Florida for about 2,000 years, little is known about the Tequesta tribe. 
as a group, we know remarkably little about them. Um, and part of that is because the Spanish had some contact, but not much in terms of sustained contact with them. And the archaeological sites that they left behind have been really devastated by various forms of development over the years. In the 1890s, a Tequesta settlement on Biscayne Bay was destroyed to make way for Henry Flagler's spacious Royal Palm Hotel. While building the hotel, construction workers desecrated a large burial mound and took human skulls from the site as souvenirs. Dr. Frank describes the destruction of Tequesta artifacts. The site was exactly where the Royal Palm Hotel was built by Flagler at the end of the 19th century. And his crew just devastated the mounds that were there. They took all sorts of machinery and, and hand tools and leveled everything, which makes it very hard to do really good archaeology. You can pull things out and you can try to do all sorts of dating, but any sort of strata where you see nice layers of artifacts, all that's been long gone. In 1926, a hurricane devastated the Royal Palm Hotel, as a result, in 1930, the hotel was demolished. In recent years, another Tequesta site was discovered during an archaeological survey of land near the Royal Palm Hotel. While excavating the site, archaeologists found a variety of artifacts, including human teeth and ancient tools. Dr. Frank tells us more about the archaeological site known as the Miami Circle. The most well-known um, Tequesta artifact or site is the, the Miami Circle, and it's on the south bank of the Miami River in Biscayne Bay, and it's right across the river from the site that I just spent a good time writing about, and we think they're connected. And on the south bank where the Miami Circle is, they found it about a decade, almost two decades ago now, um, and it's a perfectly round circle um, of post holes that are bored into the limestone underbelly of the land there. And so... They presumed that it was a house, but when they did the archaeology for it, they found very little remains there that would indicate that it was a residence. So the speculation was among the archaeologists that there's a good chance that this was something much more of a religious nature rather than a residential nature. On the North Bank, we have the exact opposite. We have all these similar type of post-hole circles, but tremendous amount of evidence that it is a residential community. And so the, the likelihood is that these two communities were connected in some way. The Miami Circle site was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 2002. It became a National Historic Landmark in 2009. The Tequesta tribe, the original inhabitants of southeastern Florida, built the foundation for what would later become Miami. As Dr. Frank explains, they also took part in long-distance trade. The Tequesta were the first inhabitants of Miami, but there's been a continuous set of linkages from the ancient world to the present. So the decisions that the Tequesta made as to where their village would be and what they would harvest led to a series of events that basically established why Miami got built where it was and many of the contours that it took. So these maritime people had their eyes out to the Atlantic world rather than to the rest of Florida or continental U.S. And so these were folks who traded with eventually Bahamians and before that the Indians of the Caribbean. And so this is a way of understanding Miami as not being recently connected to Latin America, the Caribbean, and the Atlantic, but rather something that has always been the case. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.